We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome, everybody, to our first Monday Midrash session. I'm really excited about this. Um, I thought in terms of format uh, would be that we would just kind of uh, uh, read a little bit and uh, and have like open discussion, and we'll get as far as we get each session, uh, and then pick up where we left off next time. Um, and uh, you know maybe we'll get through a whole unit uh, in in a day. Maybe we'll get through more than that. Uh, if we do, then that's great. Then it's easy to kind of uh, if you miss a session to pick up the next time. Uh, but uh, uh, but one of the nice things about midrash is that you can generally always find your way back in. We can always recap at the beginning of uh, the, the next session if you happen to miss one uh, or two. Uh, and then if you know if you find yourself you know hopelessly lost uh, because you missed a session and then uh, pick up the following week, uh, the nice thing is that you know they're pretty bite-sized units of, of material. So you know as soon as we move on to the next thing, which is generally unrelated to the previous thing, you can pretty easily pick it up. Okay. Um, so we'll start there. Uh, we're learning uh, Midrash Rabbah, um, and uh, specifically we're going to start with Breshit Rabbah, Genesis Rabbah. Um, there's some snacks there if anybody wants in the back. Feel free to get up and, and get some. Um, let me just give you a, a brief little background about this. So first, um, the the concept Midrash. What What is Midrash? I think of it as sort of a story based around a text. Yeah. just what I think of it. <laughs> Good. So it definitely can be that. Okay. So sometimes I like to, uh, and Nancy will like this. Uh, I, I sometimes like to think of Midrash as, um, as biblical fan fiction, <laughs> right? So, uh, um, uh, so sometimes it is, um, uh, an opportunity to, uh, to understand the text of the Torah better, uh, by, uh, by by sort of creating by filling in you know narrative gaps. Um, it was when I was a student in in Jewish day school. It was sometimes explained as like you know uh, filling in the white spaces of, of the Torah. Um, so sometimes it's that you know. So one of the most famous examples of that, which you know maybe we'll get to in like a year or so, uh, is uh, is the story of Abraham smashing the idols in his father's shop. Have you all heard that oh, story? Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, um, so since Rita hasn't, uh, just very briefly, um, it's, it's, it's very, it's, no, it's okay. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, uh, when I, when you always have to use, like when you used to talk, call a Jewish text famous, you have to be like very qualifying about uh, what that means. Um, so, uh, so it's a famous midrash, um, seeking to understand really the question, cause we don't really, the Torah doesn't say why God chose Abraham. 
Uh, and so the mid, that's really what the Midrash is trying, that's the white space that the Midrash is trying to fill in. And it says, you know, Abraham discovered that there was only one God and Abraham's father sold idols, which is also not in the text of the Torah itself. Uh, and, uh, and so it imagines Abraham, when his father is away from the shop one day, Abraham uh, smashed all the idols in the shop and put the stick in the hand of the largest idol in the shop. And his father comes home and says, Abraham, what did you do? And he says, well, what did I do? The big idol's holding the stick. And his father says, well, you know, how's that? You know, it's impossible. It's just a statue. And Abraham says, in good rabbinic fashion, right? It's a rabbi telling the story. You see, you know, if the, if the idol can't uh, uh, even destroy all the other idols in the shop, then how could that idol possibly respond, be responsible for creating the world and controlling your life and all those things? So anyway, but a lot of people think that that story, because it's so famous, a lot of people think that that story is in the Torah itself, but it's not in the Torah itself. It's, uh, it's uh, a rabbinic uh, understanding of the the tor- of the biblical narrative. So sometimes midrash works that way. Um, that's what we would call uh, uh, midrash agada. Um, so homiletical midrash. Uh, so midrash that seeks to kind of uh, um, add context to the story of, of the of the Bible, uh, or uh, is in, in in moral interpretation of the of of the Bible, so a lot, and most of Midrash Rabbah is Midrash Agadaz, homiletical Midrash. There's another kind of, yeah, Franklin, yeah. No, no, I, I was just trying to get an idea. When was this written in terms of the Talmud? Yeah. Was written, written, during time, was it handed down or was it actually written or did it go passed down to all? Great question. Uh, so, uh, most of it is passed down through an oral tradition. Um, uh, so, uh, the text that we're looking at today, so it's actually a complicated question. The text that we're looking at today, Genesis Rabbah, uh, was codified about the same time as the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was codified around between five and 600 uh, of the common era. Um, and the, and Genesis Rabbah was codified, uh, sometime between four and 500 of the common era. So it's a little bit earlier than, than Talmud, but later than the Mishnah. The Mishnah is codified around the year 200 of the, of the common era. Um, and this was, is one of the earliest collections of Midrash Agadah, of of, of homiletical midrash, there are earlier correct collections of what we call midrash halacha, which is legal midrash. Okay, legal midrash is similar in the sense that it strives to understand uh, sometimes opaque biblical passages, but focuses on uh, legal passages in the Torah, commandments, and tries to understand what exactly those things are commanding. Okay, so you know the Torah says, um, "Honor thy father and mother." Okay, but what exactly does it mean to honor thy father and mother, right? So Midrash, Agada, Midrash Halakha tries to uh, build on that, okay? And, um, and so there are earlier uh, collections of, of Midrash Halakha. Uh, the Mechilta is one that's a commentary on Exodus. Um, and uh, the Sifra and Sifre, uh, Sifra, I sometimes get these confused, but uh, Sifra is a commentary, is a collection of Midrash on Leviticus, and Sifra is a collection of uh, commentary on Deuteronomy. Those are uh, all, I believe, earlier than the Midrash that we're going to look at today. And many of the Midrashim in there, many of the uh, commentaries in those collections, uh, find their way into the Mishnah and the Talmud, right? Th- those are the basis of the laws in the Mishnah and the Talmud. 
Some of the uh, midrashim that we'll look at today and the other um, um, homiletical midrashim uh, are in the Talmud too. So there's not exactly a clean break between, okay, the Talmud was written first and then this, or this was written first and then the Talmud. These texts are all because they're part of an oral tradition. They're all kind of like informing and in conversation with each other around the same time, if that, if that makes sense. I, I have a hard time with this getting it in context. Who were the people that were passing it there? Was it one group yeah. that did this group and one group that did the Torah? Um, no, it's, a, it's a really good question. It's a complicated question. Okay, we we think of um, of of uh, authorship of books in a very particular way in the modern period, right? Like one person or a couple people sit down in a room for a year, whatever it is. They you know start with a blank page. They write down you know everything that they know in that book, and then they publish the book, and that's the book. Right? Maybe you'll come out with a second edition or revised edition, but it's clearly labeled as such, right? That's not the way people develop texts in the ancient world. So, so first and foremost, texts began before there was really any such thing as written word. Texts began as oral tradition. So a lot of what's in the, in the Torah uh, began, I mean, this, this is a, a, um, uh, a, a sort of like scientific, historical, academic point of view of the development of Torah. Um, if you were to ask an Orthodox colleague of mine, they would say Torah didn't begin as an oral tradition. Torah began as Torah. God, uh, and, uh, and, and in fact, in the first midrash we'll look at here, there is an interesting take on that. Okay, so we'll see about that. Um, but according to you know, sort of uh, academic, historical, scientific point of view of uh, literary point of view of Torah, uh, the the. Uh, general understanding is that a lot of the texts of the Torah began as, as oral traditions um, that uh, that are passed down, you know, in, in not, you know, you're thinking about it in kind of linear way, like this group teaches this thing and this group teaches another thing or this individual does it. And sometimes it was like that, you know, so there are places in the Torah that are very clearly, you know, like, or, or uh, as clearly as we can understand it, um, you know, this text most likely was written by an author who cared a lot about priestly concerns. Okay, so it was probably a priest uh, and, you know, wrote priestly law, right? Or a group of priests that wrote priestly law. Most of Leviticus is like that, right? Um, people assume that uh, that Deuteronomy, most of Deuteronomy was written by uh, a, a court historian of uh, maybe King Josiah uh, in the 8th century uh, before the Common Era. Um, so sometimes there are like those clear authors and sometimes it's a lot less clear and sometimes things kind of get, you know, they're in the, they're in the atmosphere. People tell stories around the campfire. They didn't have TVs back then. No one's sharing on social media, right? So these are, these are the bedtime stories, you know, um, you know, I would, yeah, I, I would tell Shemaya about, about father Abraham, you know, and, and like when I read him his Star Wars book, he wants to know like who's in each picture, right? And so sometimes I don't know who's in each picture, so I make up, you know, like of course he was from the tribe of Judah. He was a great Judite, that Abraham, right? Even though Abraham was, so um, so it's 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 not a it's not a linear answer, uh, and uh, and rabbinic texts are similar. Okay, so uh, the general understanding is that the Mishnah, for example, was codified by Rabbi Judah the Prince around the year two hundred. Okay, but it but it contains a lot of pre-existing material. He didn't write it all. He might have edited it. He might have redacted it. Uh, he might have revised it. Um, but uh, but but it wasn't all written by him. And the same thing. So a lot of times, uh, you'll see in the the first midrash here is attributed to Rabbi Hoshaya. 
who was there's two categories of uh, of ancient sages. There's uh, there, there, there are sages known as Tanaim, who are the rabbis that are contemporary to the Mishnah. Um, and then after the Mishnah is published, the next generation of rabbis are known as Amoraim. Those are the rabbis of the Talmud. Uh, Rabbi Hoshaya is an Amora, but he's an early Amora. Traditionally, Genesis Rabbah is attributed to Rabbi Hoshaya, but that's probably not accurate. Because Rabbi Hoshaya lived, you know, a century or two earlier than many of the rabbis that are quoted in the midrash. So how could that be, right? Um, so, um, so he's probably not the author of this text. Uh, it was probably written, uh, you know, or edited a, a couple centuries later. But it contains material um, that spans, you know, several centuries. Um, some of which was written, some of which was passed down orally. Does that answer your question? Yes. Any other questions? All right, so why don't we why don't we dive in? Um, <clears throat> now, what's what's customary in homiletical midrash, um, especially uh, of uh, midrash Rabbah, is uh, that they'll start with the with a text that is not at all or doesn't seem at all to be related to the text that they actually want to uh, understand. Okay, this was a game that they used to play. Like a lot of these might have been uh, homilies. Those are what they call homiletical midrash, right? So they might have been uh, what the rabbi taught in synagogue in the morning, and you know people didn't have TV, they didn't have Netflix, right? So their entertainment was going to hear the rabbi speak in synagogue in the morning, imagine. So uh, sad. <laughs> I know, so sad. And, you know, the most entertaining thing was if you could, like, pull a really obscure text and then, you know, weave it and tie it back into the text of the weekly Torah portion, okay? So that's what, that's what happens in our... So, ostensibly, we're trying to understand the first passage of Genesis, which, if you look in your... Uh, Tanakh. Um, since uh, Nancy, you got a Hebrew English. You want to read it to us in uh, in Hebrew first? Oh, you think you, no, you don't think you can do it. Okay. Well, anybody anybody know the uh, first passage in the book of Genesis? Gen. It, uh, in my book, it's page three. Might be page three in the all English versions, but yeah, you might have some like introduction pages. Oh, wait, this, get, like, half of this oh, this is volume two. That's why. Oh. I'm not an idiot about that much of an idiot. This starts with Isaiah. Okay, so there we go. Okay, that's the wrong book. All right, so you don't get a Hebrew English. <laughs> okay, so the... Uh, <laughs> I got you. Yeah, you got it? Uh, yeah, I got most of it. I'll tell you when I okay. fall off. So, gracious bar, Elohim, es, Hashemayim, Bedez Haaretz, Good. There you go. That's it. That's just the first verse. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, what 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 Nancy pointed out there is that the first verse um, really can't be understood without the second and third verse. If, if we're being honest with each other, um, so it seems like it should be a continuation of the first verse. But uh, but we're really just looking at the first verse and really um, uh, just the first word. Okay. So if, if if we had more time, if we were you know like really kind of going into this, I might say you know. What questions does that first verse leave for you, right? Which is in English, when God began to create heaven and earth, okay? So um, you might ask, uh, if we're just looking at that first verse, when God began to create heaven and earth, what, <laughs> right? Um, what's the continuation of that? Um, traditionally, or in, in older, older translations often translate that 
try to make that a sentence, which is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, But it probably uh, isn't a a complete sentence. Um, But among the things that you might uh, uh, wonder is is about that first word, bereshit. So why is it used bereshit? That's actually a strange word Hebraically. Uh, First, bereshit doesn't mean um, doesn't mean uh, in the beginning. Uh, it, if it means in something, it means in a beginning, right? So it's not ba reshit, which would mean in the beginning. It's b reshit in a beginning. Okay, so in a beginning of what? Uh, reshit is a strange word for uh, for beginning. Okay, so reshit a better word might be like. Um, Behat chala, right? So uh, at the at the at the at the initiation of something, at the beginning of something, right? Uh, reshit is like the first thing, um, like rosh, right? The head of the year, the first of the year, right? That's what reshit means. Okay, so that's anyway, but that's the verse that ultimately we're going to be looking at here. Okay, but that's not where Rabbi Hoshaya starts. Okay, so um, any thoughts or questions uh, before we move on? Okay, all right, so let's, let's look at the Midrash. Uh, someone read for Why don't we just go around? Uh, Rita, would you start reading for us in English? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. The great Rabbi Hoshaya opened with the verse from Mishlei. Mishlei is Proverbs. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, this is this is in shul on on uh, on, on Shabbos morning. On uh, you know the, this would have been two weeks ago in part of Rashid, right? Imagine the rabbi gets up and says, "I'm not going to talk about Genesis today. I'm going to talk about Proverbs." Right? And you're like, "Ooh, where's it going with this?" Right? Okay. <laughs> imagine yourself saying that. I'm not sure if that's what you would say, but imagine. Okay. All right. <laughs> Okay, so let's actually look at, um, so it's Proverbs chapter 8, verse 30. Let's look, in that, let's look at that in context for a second, if you don't mind. Um, so Proverbs is, let's see, I, it's going to be for me on page, uh, let's see, um, page 12, it's 1285. 12, I have 1290. Eight twelve ninety eight um, in mine. Oh, it depends. Okay, eight thirty. Okay. Yeah, chapter eight, verse thirty. Got it. Right. Figure the proverbs. That's good. Keep going. You want chapter eight? Oh, chapter eight. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, now I get why. Like, what? There you go. <laughs> yeah, you might be another page right there. Yeah, chapter eight, okay, verse now I see why that seems to have nothing to do with it. It's yeah. like, why are you starting with that? Yes. Right. What does that have to do with anything? <laughs> Proverbs, chapter eight. You probably have it on the same page as me, I would think, Franklin. 1298. Try 1298. Yeah, Proverbs, so 1298. Okay. I was with Okay, so uh, we'll, uh, we'll 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 go back up actually a few verses there. Um, uh, now, okay. okay. So you want to you want to read a Rita? Well, twenty two is that what yeah. Start, start with twenty two. Yeah. The Lord the Lord created me at the beginning of His course as the first of His works of old. In the distant past, I was fashioned at the beginning at the origin of Earth. Okay, hold on. Pause for a second. Who's me? The Lord created me. Who's me? Right. So, uh, so uh, Nancy says Torah. Anybody have a different answer? 
everything. I mean, without any other context, it could be first first being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right, right? If a Christian was reading this text, might a Christian say something other than Torah? Maybe, right? Um, yeah. Um, uh, so, technically, actually, I think that uh, that uh, Proverbs is talking about wisdom here. Um, but for sure, Rabbi Hoshaya is reading it as Torah. Right, uh, the Lord created me Torah at the beginning of His course as the first of His works of old. Okay, and uh, keep going, Rita. Um, in the distant past, I was fashioned at the beginning, at the origin of earth. There was still no deep when I was brought forth, no springs rich in water. Before the foundation of the mountains were sunk, before the hills, I was born. He had not yet made earth and fields, or the world's first clumps of clay. I was there when He set the heavens into place when he fixed the horizon upon the deep, when he made the heavens above firm and the fountains of the deep gush forth, when he assigned the sea its limits so that its waters never transgress his command, when he fixed the foundations of the earth, I was with him as a confidant, a source of delight every day, rejoicing before him at all times, rejoicing in its inhabited world, finding delight with mankind. Now right. so, yeah, let's pause there, okay? Yep. Okay, so Torah was present at, at at the beginning of the creation of the world, according to Rabbi Hoshaya's read of of this verse. Okay, so the um, and the verse that we're looking at is is thirty, right? I was with him, I was with God as a confidant. Um, the the uh, Hebrew word is um, uh, amon. Okay, and in your translation, it translates it as a as a pedagogue, right? A teacher. Um, so um, Amon pedag- uh, right? So I was with him as a confidant, or Rabbi Hoshaya translates it as a as a teacher, right? A pedagogue, and I was with him as a confidant, a source of delight every day. All right, now go back to the the midrash, Rita. Okay, um, I the Torah was an imam to him, and I was a plaything to him every day. Mommy's pedagogue, i.e. nanny. Yeah, I'm not sure what i.e. nanny. I didn't do this translation. I'm not sure what that means, i.e. nanny. Um, uh, but they, but if you looked in the Hebrew, it's amon pedagog, right? So or padgog. So sometimes Greek words uh, uh, seep into rabbinic texts. Fascinating. Yeah, it's um, a kind of teacher, a nanny. Yeah, yeah. The parent to, or not parent, but a parental role to child or whatever. Right. It's like an au pair, like one that's always around. Yeah. It's interesting to think about that for a second, okay? Uh, the Torah is saying that the Torah was a teacher, a pedagogue, a nanny, uh, an au pair to who? To God. To God. When God was doing what? Creating heaven and earth. Creating the world. Okay, let's keep going a little bit. Um, Amon means covered. Amon means hidden. And there is one who says Amon means great. Okay, just pause there for a second. Um... Uh, he's saying that, uh, uh, so he's saying amon, that word that's in the book of Proverbs, could mean a few things. It could mean pedagogue. It could mean, like, you know, nanny, I guess, or au pair, teacher. It could mean mechuse, uh, could mean something that covers. It could mean mutzna, could mean something that's hidden. Uh, and there are some that say it means great. Okay? So um, so he's saying that... that uh, He's taking this verse from Proverbs, saying that it's got this word, Amon, that refers, that describes what Torah was to God at the creation of the world. 
And it could be one of several things. And then he's going to go and uh, um, talk about what what each of those definitions of Amon could mean in the context of what the Torah was to God at the creation <coughs> of the world. Rita, you want to keep going or you want to pass it on? Um, can read a little more? Okay. Amon means nanny, um, as in, as a nanny, Omen, carries the suckling child. Okay, let's look at that verse. So that's the book of Numbers eleven twelve. Okay, so I'm going to be, uh, in my book, I got it as page... Page 225. 225, yep. Okay, chapter 11, verse 12. Okay, so this is, uh, um, in the book of Numbers, the children of Israel are in the wilderness. You see where we are? No. Um, we're going to be, let's see, no, 225, one oh, page oh, back. Oh, oh. Yeah. Okay, um, so uh, the people are complaining in the wilderness. They uh, um, they uh, 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 they don't have enough meat to eat, um, and just in general, they're you know they're they're being fetchy. Okay, so uh, verse ten. Franklin, will you read verse ten? Start with verse ten. I mean, in this, Moses heard the people weeping mm-hmm. every clan upon each person at the at the entrance of his tent. The Lord was very angry. Moses was distressed. And Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your your servants? And why have I not enjoyed your favor that you have laid the burden of all this people, of of, of all this people upon me? Did I conceive all the people? Did I bear them? That you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom and nurse, and carry, as a nurse carries an infant, to the land that you have promised on oath to their fathers. Where am I to get meat to give all these people when they whine before me and say, give us meat to eat? I cannot carry all these, all these people by myself, for it is too much for me. If you would deal thus with me, kill me rather, I beg you, and let me see no more of my wretchedness. Okay, so who's uh, the, the verse that uh, Rabbi Hoshaya is quoting here that he says means nanny, uh, who's the speaker of that verse? Moses. Moses. Okay, Moses to who? God. To God, right? Is uh, that's a game we used to play in um, in my sixth grade uh, Bible class in day <coughs> school. Me Amar El Me. Who said it to who? Okay, so Moses is speaking to God here, right? And Moses is Moses is saying, um, uh, you know, I, I can't be. Uh, I can't be a nanny to these people, right? I can't be a nurse to these people. Um, okay, so put it back in the midrash now, okay? And we're saying one of the options that Rabbi Hoshaya gives about what an amon means with respect to Torah and God is that amon means means a pedagogue uh, to God at the creation of the world. And he says pedagogue means this. So pedagogue means a nanny or a nurse. So just for us, what would it mean for the Torah to be a nanny or a nurse to God at the creation of the world? It's strange because it's almost like, it's almost suggesting that Torah was guiding God through something, which it just seems a little little, a little different than, than what you would think, you know, God had this moment where he decided something was going 
to be and you know from what we all learn and and at least from what I've, I've learned and understood is that that was the first thing how was tour there before that it's interesting any thoughts I mean that certainly that the Torah has all this responsibility bears all this responsibility mm-hmm. to God if I mean that's nanny to child and that's what Moses is complaining about for me to take total responsibility on people who rely so but again sort of the strange that like so Torah has God responsibility have to you know? God yeah like yeah. who's helpless and right. totally reliant on yeah we would say that now I guess that that's a relationship for Torah to have to us a source of strength help so guidance it, yeah it makes God seem reactionary but, not quite reactionary but you know I mean you know I that's just interesting. It's hard to picture. Yeah. Saying here the Torah was out there. What is it? Out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. It begs the question who created the Torah. Right. right. We all learned it. It was God that created it. It was God that handed down the Torah on Mount Sinai. Yeah. That's well so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's Bracious Rabbah Elohim, not Bracious Rabbah Torah, you know. Right. So uh, there's a, uh, a Kabbalistic take on that first verse of uh, Breshi Bara Elohim as uh, in the beginning, God was created. Yeah. Um, so, right. Uh, you know, so uh, bar, you know, bara is sort of a, an ambiguous verb there. There's, it's, it's unclear whether God is supposed to be the, uh, the subject of that verse or the object of that verse. Um, uh, and it also could mean by, right. So one of the things that, that I think he's getting at here is when it says, uh, the Hebrew pronouns can be not pronouns, um, prepositions can be promiscuous, you know, so be can mean, can mean in, right. But also, as you see in our translation here, translates as when God began, right. Um, which isn't exactly a preposition, I grant you, but, um, it also, but it could mean with, right. So bereshit with. A reshit, God created the world. And so then the question is, okay, so what's a reshit? What's a beginning, right? Um, and that, I think, is, is one of the, or, like, that's the, that's the move of this midrash, I think, is that Rabbi Hoshaya is saying, what was the thing that God created the world with, right? Assuming that, hey, like, I need a blueprint to build a house, right? Um, so maybe God needed a blueprint to build the world. Now, it begs the question, of course, who who created the Torah? And also, like, how does the blueprint work? Like, I read the Torah, and it doesn't strike me as, like, a, an instruction manual for building the world, or at least not literally an instruction manual for building the world. So what, what does that mean, that God used the Torah to, to, to build the world? Right? And that, to your point, Rita, you know, God couldn't have done it without the Torah's help, right? They, that, that, the Torah has total responsibility for, for, you know, nurturing God through the process of creating the world, sustaining God through the process of creating the world. There's a lot to chew on. Yeah. All right, well, let's just kind of let, let that percolate a little bit, and we'll, we'll go on, we'll go, we'll go on a little bit. Um, Rita, you're doing a great job. You want to keep going? Um, so we're now, though, uh, Amon means covered. Amon means covered, as in, in Eicha, which Eicha. is the Book of Lamentations. Those who were covered in mean in scarlet have embraced refuse heaps. Okay, so let's look at 
our good friend, the Book of Lamentations. Um, uh, let's see, I have... Um, anybody remember the holiday on which we read the Book of Lamentations? Tisha B'Av. good. Okay. Um, <clears throat> okay, so I have it as uh, page 1436. Fourteen thirty-six. Is that what you have too, Susan? Yeah. Yeah. You want to read for us? Why don't we? Why don't we just? Uh, we, we, it's only a few verses. Why don't we read starting from verse one? Alas. Alas. Yeah. Alas, the gold dulled, debased, the finest gold, the sacred gems are spilled at every street corner. The precious children of Zion, once valued as gold, alas, they are accounted as earthen pots, work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast and suckle their young, but my poor people have, has turned cruel like ostrich of the desert. The tongue of the suckling cleaves to its palate for thirst. Little children beg for bread. None gives them a morsel. This is all describing Jerusalem upon the destruction of the first temple. Those who feasted on dainties lie famished in the streets. Those who were reared in purple have embraced refuge heaps. Okay. That's our verse, right? Those who were reared in purple have embraced refuse heaps, right? Uh, reared, you know, covered in purple, right? draped in, in royal clothing, right? Um, so, okay, put it back. Now, put this idea back. So, in this case, okay, the Torah was an amon to God at the creation of the world, and here he's saying that Amon could possibly mean a covering or a drapery or a garment of some sort. So what would it mean for the Torah to be a garment to God at the creation of the world? It's like God like, wore the Torah as like his tallest. That's what I have imagery I get. And that's a little bit interesting too because let me process that a little more. I'm going to go off without thinking. I just that's, that's, that's to me seems a little more accessible than it being a nanny, like being it being a covering. So why is it more accessible? Accessible how? can't imagine anything leading God anywhere. So, like, you know, again, this is my own personal lens, but, you know, that's you know, Hashem's number one, and that's, that's it. And, you know, I, I've always imagined... You need to get you a big foam finger that says Hashem's number one. <laughs> I would wear that. And during your divar, where I'm like, hmm... Well, I gotta go like that. Um, the yeah, I can't imagine anything leading Hashem anywhere, but uh, I can't imagine. I, I do understand Torah to be like the the it's not it's not there's, there's no right words, but like the closest companion of God, and that why it was such a big it was such a big sticking point when you know there was another I think a gothic um, drash about the angels not wanting. God to give it to Moses, mm-hmm. saying this is too much for them, and so because it's so it's so close to God, mm-hmm. and um, so imagining God being draped in you know the majesty or whatever of, of Torah seems more accessible to me than it being its nanny. And how does that help God create the world? How does that covering help God create the world? 
Like, what does that add to the process of creation? I know when you're under a talus, you feel what, stronger. A covering, hmm? you see, mm-hmm. how does that? Yeah. And by the way, the, the, what Nancy offers is just, I think, one interpretation. That, that was a covering for God, right? It could be a covering for the world, right? So it's a, if you look, yeah. remember the verse, right? Um, I, the Torah, was an, um, was the Hebrews actually, I was with him at slow or to him or with him an Amon. Okay. So, um, so I was with, uh, with God as a covering, right? Or to God, a covering in the creation of the world or, or garment in the creation of the world could be a garment that God's wearing. could be a garment for the world that God is creating. I'm not sure, but sorry. No, 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 I wasn't going to say, I was, I'm just trying to understand what everybody was saying. I have nothing to offer really right now. I'm just listening and kind of trying to figure it out myself. With him and to him, I think changes it. Okay. That difference makes a difference to me. Um, Like, again, I see them as partners, like one is, you know, God's here towards just like right there. And, um, but with him, because you said if it wasn't a covering for the whole earth, that's really interesting. And I think with changes that. For me, one person. I mean, I think I think of like an enveloping presence or, or boundary, but it, you know, in a warm mm-hmm. and useful way, which could either be I guess, God who is going through the difficult task of creation. It provides a source of kind of strength, protection, mm-hmm. warmth. That's like being under, a which is like the yeah. nanny to the suckling child. Right. Is sort of the I'm, I'm you know. Also, could for for it's a security the, blanket security. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for the for the for the creation also can be too a sort of a a boundary in a. I think even sort of a. Right. I mean, then that's really interesting too if you think about it in the context of the verse that he's quoting, right? Which is what the world looks like when everybody's garments are stripped off, right? In other words, you know, this like scene of destruction and devastation and lawlessness and chaos. Right. Whereas if you think about like um, covering, right, drapery, there's the sense of like boundary being being bounded, like having something to cling on to, having something to hold on to. Um, you didn't say this, but you know, I'm thinking of like a security blanket or something like that, you know, or just how you feel when you have when you're properly clothed. You know, there's a, everybody has the nightmare of showing up in school naked. Right. And what it, um, and what it means. You never had the nightmare? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we all have had that, yes. Only um, for exams. Can I just, I, I have a couple of, uh, I've been uh, Facebook living this, and I have a couple of, uh, um, qu- I have a question and a comment from cyberspace. So well, a question is, um, so is our world the center of God's universe, or is God just the center of ours? Again, one woman's opinion, it's the latter. God is the center of our universe. Oh, yeah. Or... I mean, we're speaking metaphorically. He's, is the whole universe. Right, so... You, me, though, um, I'm a really specific yeah, I mean, I, I imagine that to Rabbi Hoshaya, our world was the center of God's universe because in, you know, the 5th uh, century, yeah, our world was the center of the universe, right? <laughs> Everything revolved around the earth. Really true. Um, and then uh, someone, another comment was, um, I think the Torah envelops us as a prayer shawl does. Like it wraps around us and guides our lives. So like God is making it as our swaddle. As someone who's doing a lot of swaddling lately. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I don't see God as eating as well. That's what I'm sort of struggling. I mean, I, I get the whole, I, I really like the concept of 
tourists walking past the big beds makes me feel good, but I can't quite make the leap to God. I'm really taken with um, with uh, a, a school of philosophy called process philosophy, um, and process philosophy uh, is sort of like um, it was developed in the um, early mid 20th century uh, by a philosopher named Alfred North Whitehead, uh, who was also a a, 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 a physics professor. Um, no, excuse me, a mathematician. Um, and his, his insight is that, um, we like to think of ourselves and really since, since, uh, Aristotle, we think of ourselves sort of as like solid substances that, you know, bump into each other. So when we're, we're born, we're like born as like a solid entity and, you know, like we interact with each other, we bump into each other, I touch the ground, whatever. But in reality says that we're, we're actually, um, uh, it's better to think of ourselves more like liquids or gases, right? In other words, like we're, we're always in motion. We're always in process. Um, so that the, even though, you know, I have like a boundary that kind of like, that makes me, me, that boundary is actually really permeable. Um, and, um, and I'm never actually the same me in any moment than I am in the next moment. So like, uh, we're, we're always in, in, in process of becoming more, we're, we're in each moment, uh, different individuals. We have, actually dynamic interactions with our environment rather than static interactions with our environment um, is what I'm saying, like making any sense at all. So, so it, God in that view um, is also in process. And, uh, and so God, we, so we think of God, I think a lot of times because we're, we're in a world that's very heavily influenced by Greek philosophy and Greek thought. So we think of God as a solid substance too. God is, you know, that old guy with the beard in the sky, right? And God, um, has always been that and will ever be that. Uh, but that's not necessarily the only way of viewing God, right? Maybe God, if God is in process, then maybe God at the creation of the world might be better metaphorized as a baby, you know, uh, that, uh, that when the universe is a baby, God's a baby. Maybe God needs a swaddle at the beginning well, of the creation and, of the world. And we do, I mean, if when we read through Torah, the writers, if that's your view of Torah, um, have God, they, they give him, they give God, not human-like qualities. But so they give God emotion mm-hmm. and foibles, mm-hmm. right? God, God gets angry. God, God does something that seems vengeful or punishing. God has, God is bargained with and talked down off the ledge. So, you know, there is sort of, I don't know if it's, I'd have to think about it. if I think it's evolutionary in the Torah, does he seem to go, does God, does God go grow? From, yeah. yeah. Does God grow? And is it, is it a linear yeah. path for us? It's not it, human beings. It's not a linear path, right? right? We grow, but we also regress. Right. And sure. do, right. Sometimes we're teenagers. Sometimes we're toddlers. Right. And then we go back to that. Right. Yeah. But so maybe that thought of if God that. is creating everything, Sort of, there's nothing more daunting. God is setting in motion this process. Talk about a moment you need strength and wisdom and perseverance and patience. <laughs> um, I feel like something's with you. Right. That. I can, you know, that would be, we can only understand things as humans. That's certainly for humans understandable. Right. And also, you know, I mean, this, this, you know, fast forwards us in the text some, 
but it also helps explain why God's uh, first insight about uh, humanity uh, in Genesis chapter 2 is lo tov heyot adam levado. It's not good for the human to be alone. I'll make for him a helpmate opposite him. Right? That, uh, that there's an insight there that, um, that if something is going to be involved in, in the work of, of, uh, of in creative work, you can't do it alone. Right? You need support. You need assistance. Uh, we have a few little bit of time. Should we go on a little bit more? Yeah. Go on a little bit more? Um, okay. All right. Um, Rita, you're doing a great job. We'll, 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 we'll put Franklin on the spot next week. Okay. <laughs> um, Amon means hidden as in, mm-hmm. it says in Esther, he hid away, Hadassah. Yeah. By the way, I mean, right, so um, Esther, uh, well, since we did this with, with uh, Echa, we'll do it with Esther. What holiday do we read Esther? Yeah. Forum, yeah. good. Forum uh, is a great yeah. holiday on which to read <laughs> Esther because the, the name Esther in the first place means hidden. To be concealed, and what do we do on Purim? Dress up. We wear masks, exactly, right? And so, right. So uh, let's look at uh, the Book of Esther, chapter two, verse seven. Let's see where we are in here. Um, it's on page fourteen fifty nine for me, which means probably for most of you. Two verse seven. Okay, this is 1459. Yeah, you got it, Franklin? You got it, Nancy? Yeah. Sure. All right, why don't, why don't you read, start Start with verse uh, 5. Okay, this is after, okay, so uh, King Ahasuerus has a drunken party, wants his queen Vashti to come, Vashti doesn't want to come, he banishes Vashti, now he has no queen, has to find another queen, okay? <laughs> There's a Jewish man in Shushan, the capital whose name was Mordecai, son of Yair, son of Shimshay, son of Kish, a Benjamin. Benjamite, who had been king of Judah, who Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had exiled. He had, he had been exiled from Jerusalem. So, so read that last verse again. Last verse. Verse 6. So we're talking about Mordecai. Yeah. Er, who had been exiled from Jerusalem, along with the exiles, who had been exiled with Yehoniah, king of Judah. Uh, okay, all right. I think I skipped the line. Sorry, yeah, that's good. Okay. King of Judah. They were all exiled by Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, good. And he had reared, this is seven, keep mm-hmm. going, yes? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he had reared Hadassah, she is Esther, his uncle's daughter. Keep going. Yeah. For she had neither father nor mother. The maiden was finely featured and beautiful of appearance, and when her father and mother had died, Mordecai adopted her as his daughter. He left her the word, she... <laughs> she was shapely and beautiful. Maybe yeah. they don't have shapely art in the art scroll. Art scroll scrubbed shapely. So it's interesting. So uh, uh, here, read, the, read your translation of verse 7 again. Verse 7, we have, And he, Mordecai, had reared Hadassah, she is Esther, yeah. his uncle's daughter. Great. Okay. So, so anyway, uh, it translates our, our translation in the Midrash translates Omain as hid, but your translation has reared and our translation, that's where it says he was a foster father, right? So, um, so, so it may not be he hid Esther so much as he was the guardian of Esther, right? He was the, the last one too. 
Oh, yeah? yeah okay, all right. Um, okay, so... Uh, <clears throat> Okay, so so uh, so now let's put it back into uh, the verse, right? The the Torah was with God as an as an Omein or as an Amon uh, at the creation of the world. Okay, so the so now uh, the Torah was um, with God or to God as a foster parent or as a guardian or as a raiser of children um, at the creation of the world. And it says here hidden. Okay, so you go through that in the mix. That the Torah was with God as a as a hiding thing or protecting thing at the creation of the world. What do you make of that? I think I mean it really nods to what what you said very much. Yeah, some of the same things we've already said. This is what it seems brings for me. But so does it add anything? Does it add anything then? What do you mean? Does I mean does this you know? So Rabbi Hoshaya thinks that this is like a distinct new way of understanding that word, right? Uh, I mean, it, presumably he thinks it's distinct. Well, if you so think of foster parent, if you put that context in, well, foster parent is stepping into the role that's not its natural role. So, bef- right, so we had, well, Tanani is in, I- as well, is not mm-hmm. a parent, but it's <laughs> taking on a role or substituting but I don't know. But but but, it's, but you're right. I mean, the, so nanny or nurse has like a very particular, uh, more limited role than foster parent, right? Foster parent is much more all encompassing. It's assuming the role, kind of. It's just kind of taking it. You know, just yeah. It's assuming the role. Right. So, so there's no other. Right. It's voluntary in a way that so, a nurse is not. Right. So in the in the passage from Exodus, Moses saying, "Did you hire me to be a nurse to these people?" Right? Is that the job you gave me? Right? And uh, so that's what a, we, we hire a nurse to do a job, but a foster parent generally takes it on themselves. It it's voluntary. Well, and the yeah. part that you said also, though, because there's not another. So if you think of this idea, again, they're all struggling with about God, is how does God need help or how does God need these kinds of guidance? God doesn't have parents for guidance. God doesn't have. So if we want to think God needs any kind of help, somebody taking it on who doesn't, right? Because there's no other. Who's helping God? Right? right, right. <laughs> Was this allegorical trying to trying to build a kind not trying so much to tell a story but trying to build a story? So, well, what would be as opposed to what? Is it allegorical as opposed to what? I mean, he's using uh, he's using all of these little stories bringing them in, trying to explain what, what God is. Seems like to me is what he's trying to do. What God is and what Torah is, right, and what they are to each other. I mean, that's also worth mentioning that um, that it that it presumes here that, um, that that the nature of Torah is inherently relational, right? So Torah, depending on who you are, Torah can be something different to you than it is to me, right? Uh, and so if God is a baby, then Torah is a nanny, right? If God is, you know, a sickly patient or something, God is a nurse. If God is a naked person, Torah is a covering, uh, right? So if, if you are a broken-hearted person, maybe Torah can be a comfort to you. If you are um, a person in need of guidance, the Torah can be a teacher to you, right? So um, I think that that's actually an interesting thing. Uh, that wasn't your question, I don't think, but, but, but it does suggest that that the nature of Torah depends on the nature of the reader of Torah. Plus, we're focused a lot on what does this say about God and struggle with that. Maybe 
but the other half of that focus is what does it say about Torah? Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Not not in relation to God, but just what does it say about Torah? So quickly, a couple of uh, questions or comments from cyberspace. Um, Let's see. If there is a collective maturing of humans and of God, and the era of the Torah is our infancy, how old are we now? What is our current stage of maturity? Are we teenagers, adolescents, seniors? Someone once told me that they think that we might still be in the sixth day of creation. We're still just trying to get out of that day in the first place. Yeah, so there, there, there. Like Groundhog Day. Yeah, <laughs> there is that idea, by the way, that, and there's uh, it goes with this idea that you know, so we're in the year fifty seven seventy eight now, um, and so with with each thousand years is a is a different day of creation. So when we get to the year six thousand, it's the end of the sixth day of creation. We'll be in the seventh day of creation then. So the year six thousand, according to many people, is going to be when the onset of the messianic era. Um, so that's a, a related idea. Um, what? Yeah, sorry. Sucks <laughs> away. It's a good right. It's a good argument for some cryogenic freezing. Um, okay. Uh, so, uh, um, okay. This one is prefaced with the heading "Big Question." So get ready. Okay. Uh, I know some people say God has no emotion, but it feels like. If we as humans are in the image of God and we have emotions, it's hard to relate to a being that doesn't feel creating, uh, that doesn't feel creating beings that do. How do we reconcile these versions of God? If God doesn't feel, then everything we do is for the sake of each other and society rather than because it's holy to do so or God is going to reward or punish us. That's, that's the not only is it a big question, it's like, uh, it's a, there's a lot of questions there. And I think that the question is, um, how do we, if, if God has, uh, taking the premise that God has no emotions, how does uh, a being with no emotions create beings with emotions? And how do we as beings with emotions relate to a being that has no emotions? There's not like a right answer, right? No, there's no right there's, Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Without emotion. No, I think pretty clear that he's got some kind of emotions. I don't know that we can fully get our heads around it. You know, we're, I mean, I, I think it, it's definitely conceivable that he does. I mean, we can all conceive that there's many different facets of God. He's called by a number of different names in different circumstances. And so I think it's feasible to think that he could also feel and react different ways according to those different facets and different circumstances. I have a harder time doing it. I can't deal with the God who wouldn't care. And that's care right. to me. Is an emo- that's an emotion. Right. If God doesn't care about us, I find it hard to yeah. be in relationship to God. Right. So, and, and, and with that idea, I think that that, that actually adds a, another level of complexity to this Midrash because... It, you know, we could read this midrash, I think, simultaneously as um, God really, really cares about getting creation right. So then turns to um, to you know outside sources for guidance and help because otherwise God may not get it right. That's sort of what Rita offered uh, before, along the lines of what Rita offered before. Um, another possibility is not so much that God doesn't care, um, but uh, God needs to be prodded into action, right? So, you know, like, think of, like, you know, if you think of it more like a, a, a teacher or instructor or something, you know, like, in other words, uh, God is sort of like a reluctant student, 
right? And the teacher needs to sort of like, like encourage God to like, you know, uh, to, to learn. Not every student is the most willing student. Not every student like wants to be in math class, right? So, so like I, you know, I'm picturing the Torah and that and sort of like, um, not quite like a, a, a nurse to a suckling, but like as a British school marm, <laughs> you know, um, saying like, you may not want to be here, God, but you're here and you're going to get it right because you're here, you know? Um, so think about it that way. Like, like God may not want to create the world, but the Torah is saying, God, you better create the world and you better do it right. It's kind of hard to accept. Hard to accept. It's, it's just a, so alien, so foreign to anything I've ever come across. Just doesn't, uh, just doesn't uh, seem real. Okay. The Torah. Sure. It, you know, it, it, it does mean that there, um, that at least according to Rabbi Hoshaya, there's a more, there's a more complex relationship between God and Torah than, than what we would have otherwise been led to does believe. Does anybody else go along with Rabbi Hoshaya? Is it accepted theory? I'm not right. It is, I would, I would say, I would say that the idea that God used the Torah in the creation of the world, like look to the Torah in the creation of the world is a very prevalent idea in rabbinic thought. Um, so it's not a universally accepted idea, uh, but it's a very prevalent idea in rabbinic thought. Now, I think that that, again, you know, to your question, like, is this allegorical? I'd say yes, right? Um, I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not sure if they thought of that literally, like, God, did God literally look at the Torah in that way? I'm not sure that they literally thought that God dropped the Torah on a mountaintop. Right, so I'm not. I think that both of those might be allegories, and what what they may be saying here is trying to to point more to insights about what Torah might be to us, and also what the nature of God is. Right, so maybe God is someone who cares so deeply about getting the world right that God, you know, even God is willing to turn to guidance. Right. Um, and it might be, you know, it might be saying like, you know, uh, we, we all of us, you know, none of us are God, right? So if, if God needs guidance in creating the world, right, how much more so do we need guidance in the construction of our lives and in our work of repairing the world, right? So, you know, it's the, the rabbinic move, like, uh, right? How much the more so do we need to look to Torah as a way of, of guiding our lives and, and, well, and how we shift the world? Each of us are, in fact, a little bit of God. Each of us has this capacity to do good, to do love and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, very much so, right? There's this idea that uh, first of all, we have the image. We're, we're supposedly created in the image of God, right? right? That's a little bit later in the first chapter of Genesis, uh, and. Um, uh, and also, uh, there's a concept in rabbinic thought, uh, based on a biblical verse that, that one of the ways we know we're doing the right thing in the world is we're supposed to emulate God, right? We're supposed to act like God, right? So if you plug that into this concept, right, if, if God acts this way, then we should act this way. Right? We should look to the Torah as we should utilize the Torah.